Then you start. Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. With the exception of the War of 1812, the years between the signing of the Constitution and the start of the Civil War are generally not taught in high schools or celebrated in Hollywood biopics. After reading American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850, the latest book by two-time Pulitzer Prize winning historian Alan Taylor, it's not hard to figure out why. It was a time of the systematic eradication of indigenous peoples from coast to coast, many of whom were already living in highly advanced agrarian societies, to the federal government's failure to offer enslaved African Americans even the most basic protections from sexual assault or murder. It's not a, a period we should be proud of, but there's no denying it's critical to understanding the troubled history of racial justice that continues to haunt us today. The book is published by W.W. W. Norton and Company and brings Professor Taylor, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Chair of the History Department at the University of Virginia, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Well, it's a fascinating book. The problem is it has much too much interesting material. I'm not sure we can get to it. even the things that I think are really important. It's, it's the third of a trilogy that looks at specific periods in U.S. history. The previous two, uh, American colonies, the settlement of North America in eight to 1800. The second, American revolutions of continental history, 1750 to 1804. Was it always your idea to cover the pre-Civil War period in this way? Well, I don't think so. When I started out, I, I would just had the invitation to do American colonies. And uh, that was a, a bit of a surprising uh, invitation because I specialize in the history of the early republic. But uh, having written that one book, I, I decided I wanted to write a sequel, which became American Revolutions. And having done that, I wanted to do American Republic. So it just kept growing. Will this be the last book in the series? Well, it depends. If I work up the courage to do American Civil Wars, that would be the, uh. the a volume in the series, and, and that does intrigue me, but uh, I'd, I'd have a lot of reading to do to get in confidence to do that. Well, you have a huge bibliography in the back of this book. You note in your introduction that in the year 1800, Washington, D.C. had only one-tenth the population of New York City or Philadelphia, but it was a key transit center for the slave trade. Do you think having an open slave market so close to the seat of power affected discussions of slavery in Congress and in the White House? Absolutely, because anti-slavery congressmen would, would point right out the window and say, you know, look, we, we are a center of the slave trade right here, and that's not compatible with our being a republic of free people. We learned from your book just how advanced the societies of many of the native peoples were. You write that in the 1820s, the Cherokee established a new national capital called New Echota in an attempt to earn diplomatic respect from the United States. We can only hope that Rick Santorum reads your book. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll see. Because um, he, he's portraying them as primitive hunter-gatherers. Yeah, there's a long tradition of just casting Native peoples as um, permanently fixed in the Stone Age and unable to adapt to the colonial presence in their world. And in fact, they're highly resourceful, adaptable people. 
And so the Cherokee and other nations in the Southeast, they, they were picking and choosing from American culture, elements such as a written constitution or their own Congress uh, in, in order to make themselves visible as, look, we, we're a coherent civilized body, now uh, recognize our sovereignty and, and honor the treaties that you've made with us. And the Cherokee, the Choctaw Creek tribes developed farms in the white American tradition with livestock, even owned slaves. And they built mills and roads and embraced literacy mm -hmm. and Christianity with the help of Protestant missionaries. Uh, and yeah. didn't they even replace their chiefs with central governments that were based on the American model? Uh, well, some of the nations did, particularly the Cherokee. Mm -hmm. They did exactly that. Yeah. yeah, they established an alphabet and their own newspaper. Yeah, um, but that actually made them more frightening because um, American leaders preferred the stereotype of Indians as permanent primitives because that justified them to uh, keep coming back to them to enter treaties to give up more of their lands and move farther west. So it was very troubling to American leaders that in fact the Cherokee had taken seriously the invitation to adopt elements of American culture and were consolidating their hold on their own homelands. You write that in 1842, after a decade of coercive treaties, I'm quoting you, the federal government had removed 100,000 Indians and secured 100 million acres of Eastern land in exchange for 32 million acres and $68 million. How often did the government fail to deliver on even the basic promises they'd agreed to in these treaties? Well, I, I don't know of a single treaty where the government fulfills all of its promises. And... Um, so it, it's a recurrent pattern where uh, government agents would show up and say to native peoples, we can't protect you from these squatters that are invading your lands. So the best you can do is enter a treaty with us in which we'll pay you pennies on the dollar for thousands of acres. Uh, and on these shrunken reservations that we leave you, we'll then protect you. And then of course, fail to protect them. And so there's a new round of treaties. And, and so the, the native peoples, the great majority of them living east of the Mississippi are forcibly uh, sent to new reservations in the West, primarily in what is now Kansas and Oklahoma. But in the future, they'll be told that, again, the government can't protect them from this invasion of squatters, and therefore they will have to give up most of those lands. How did they deal with the leaders who made these deals that uh, really didn't work very well for them? Well, in some cases, the, the native peoples feel betrayed by their own leaders who enter into these treaties in, from a sense of desperation. Uh, but the, the, their opponents can be unforgiving. So there are cases of uh, native leaders being assassinated for having entered into mm -hmm. these treaties. Didn't dentists use teeth from the corpses of natives uh, dung up by grave diggers to put in the mouths of whites? How did you learn about that practice and how common was it? That's shocking. Well, it's a common practice that, that uh, when the non-native peoples take over a land, they, they start plundering the graves of native peoples. Uh, now, they're, they're often looking for things like arrowhead or, or bits of, of copper and so forth, or curiosities that they can put in their museums or, or native skulls that they can display. Uh, but there is this one case that I know of where a dentist is going there to harvest mm. the skulls of native peoples for teeth that then can be used for indentures oh for his, uh, his patients who happen to be white people. As the U.S. Army began to build more forts, didn't 
uh, native uh, chiefs from near the border appealed to the British uh, in, in Upper Canada. What were some of the treaties or agreements that Indian tribes made with the British or other European nations in response to what was going on uh, with the, uh, the U.S. government? So I've mostly been describing events of the 1830s, and, and now we're going back a little bit earlier in time to the 1780s and 1790s, uh, in which Native peoples are in a stronger position, but they know that they need a supplier of, um, of advanced weaponry of that time. So uh, they need an, a European ally for that. And they turn to either the Spanish or the, the British empires. The British were based in Canada at that time, and the Spanish were based in Florida and Louisiana at that time, this is before the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, so, so these alliances are, are meant to uh, find a common interest in that the British or Spanish empires would like to contain the expansion of the United States, and native peoples would very much like to contain that expansion. At that time, warfare in the West consumed nearly five-sixths of the federal budget. That, that seems, the strikes me in as the incredible. the 1790s, yeah. Yeah. Really, that, there were no other things that the federal government had to pay for? Well, the federal government was a, a lot smaller operation than it is today. So the, its basic functions were to collect taxes on imports, to deliver the mail, to hold Congress, uh, and to expand into the West with the help of a military. And then they would have land offices to sell these lands to settlers and to land speculators. But, but there's no land to sell unless they can first defeat these Indians who've allied with the British in what is now the American Midwest. Weren't a lot of major geopolitical decisions in our country's early days driven by prejudice? For example, early government leaders rejected treaties with Mexico because it was a, a mixed race Catholic nation. How might the North American continent have looked with a, a Mexico-U.S. alliance? Well, Mexico had, had created a republic, um, its own movement for independence had culminated in its own independence as, as, a, as a republic. One might have hoped that the United States would have been encouraging of this fellow republic, but instead they saw Mexico as in the way of expansion. Uh, because at that time in 1821, Mexico included what is now Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California. And Texas in particular was an, an early object of desire for American settlers. So things would have looked quite differently um, if the United States had entered into a more cooperative relationship with Mexico. Were the British any better during the Revolutionary War? Didn't thousands of enslaved people in the colonies who fled captivity help the British because they believed that they were truer champions of liberty? Had uh, by that time had Britain already banned slavery uh, on its own? Well, Britain had banned slavery within England before mm. the American Revolution, but it still kept slavery in its colonies, which is where the great majority of enslaved people within the British Empire lived in places like Jamaica and Barbados. So, um Britain is, is not completely committed to abolition as of the American Revolution, but it becomes so committed by the 1830s. But um, um, enslaved people in America who are fighting for their freedom, they're looking for allies too, people who can help them. And when the British Empire is at war with the United States, then enslaved people are tempted to run away to British military encampments or British warships off the coast in order to gain freedom.
Both the, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, America's first political parties, disliked the idea of parties at the turn of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. were, were they driven to partisan warfare out of fear of their opponents? Uh, and do you see any parallels with the politics of today? Well, the politics of today are, are certainly very partisan. And I often hear people say they've never been more partisan. Well, we've had plenty of partisan politics, very bitter politics mm. in this country. And, and, and there are also periods where it's been less partisan. So I can think of the, the 1950s and even the 1960s as, as a period in which the two parties were more inclined to cooperate in, in many areas. But if we go back to the 1790s, we find two parties, uh, the, the Federalists, who were the governing party of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, and then the opposition party, which is called uh, the Republican Party or Democratic Republicans or the Jeffersonians. And both of those parties at that time, it, it was a period of time in which the, the founders didn't, didn't like political parties. They thought that there would be some common interest and that, and that uh, the politicians would be able to unite around this common interest. So they didn't want there to be partisan division, but that had a paradoxical effect because when, when this opposition group emerges, the Federalists feel betrayed and they feel that these Jeffersonian Republicans are, are in fact doing something quite illegitimate. And, well, is it really, really a, a divide over whether we should have a strong central government, as the Federalists would have liked, or no, the Federalists uh, are creating or, or a empower the state. And and the the Jeffersonians are saying that mm. reminds us too much mm. of the kind of British centralized power that we'd resisted in the Revolution. So these two groups both deny the legitimacy of the other, and it means that their politics are very bitter. But the, the Federalists appear to be losing that battle in 1785 when Congress sold off all U.S. warships and reduced the army to 300 men. When did well, that change? Okay, that's before the federal constitution. Yeah. So the federal constitution comes along and, and the Federalists are the chief architects of that. And, and the Federalists are trying to create a stronger national government. They implement the constitution during the 1790s. And then all of a sudden the Jeffersonian Republicans say, but you've gone too far. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Alan Taylor, whose latest book is American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850, published by Norton. Uh, the years between the signing of the, the Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in 1789 were contentious between the states. And you, you quote Benjamin Franklin from the Constitutional Convention in 1787 as saying, our states are on the point of separation only to meet hereafter for the purpose of cutting one another's throats. But they, they did wind up compromising again, uh, ultimately, obviously. Yeah, the, the federal convention that was held in Philadelphia was not a love fest. Uh, there was deep distrust between the different states. Um, but they, they managed to patch together a series of compromises, some of which we admire, such as the, the decision that the, the Senate would represent states and every state would be equal, while the House of Representatives would represent population so that the bigger states would have bigger delegations. But there are also compromises uh, with, with slaveholding. So a fugitive slave 
clause and the three-fifths clause for representing enslaved people, uh, giving power to their owners. And and so that, that came from, that came five thought. years after that came five years after the Constitution was ratified in 1788, when Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. Right, that denied uh, trial well, by jury or any legal protections to accuse runaway slaves. Well, the, the Fugitive Slave Clause is written into the Constitution, and then Congress defines it with a mm. statutory law in 1793. And that law does denied, uh, deny two accused fugitives the right of a jury trial. That led to a, a surging market for bounty hunters in the North. Yeah, it makes it open season for people who are unscrupulous to go and, and grab, uh, in particular, black children off the streets of places like Philadelphia and New York and Boston, and then sell them to the South. What was the constitutional crisis of 1801 that led to the, the 12th Amendment? Well, we mentioned that there's bitter partisan politics. Um, I also should mention that under the original constitution, Every presidential elector had two votes, not one, but two. And he, and he, and it was a he, had to cast those votes for the two people he thought best qualified to be president. So there wasn't a separate vote for vice president. And it meant that in the election of 1800, the, uh, the, the two leading uh, Jeffersonian Republican candidates, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, ended up tied. Now, the Jeffersonian electors had meant to elect Jefferson as president and Burr as vice president, but the Federalists saw an opportunity to make trouble by intriguing with Burr and suggesting that they in the House of Representatives could throw the presidency to him. So there was a long deadlock. Mm -hmm. Or finally, enough Federalists abstained from voting in Congress that they allowed Jefferson to become president and Burr to be vice president. And that led to the 12th Amendment, which mandated that a presidential elector would vote separately, one vote for president and one for vice president. But Aaron Burr killed the Federalist leader, Alexander Hamilton, in a duel in July of 1804 after he blamed him for sabotaging his bid to become governor of New York. How common was dueling in politics at that time? It was very common. And particularly among former military men, which you know, both Hamilton and Burr had been officers in the Continental Army of the Revolutionary War. And so they had a very robust sense of honor. And Burr felt that, that Hamilton had insulted him and had not uh, provided uh, an apology that Burr had sought. And so that led to a duel. And these were quite common among the politicians, particularly those with some military experience during that generation. Although he's uh, celebrated in a, a famous hit musical, Alexander Hamilton doesn't always come across as the most likable person in your book. Well, Alexander Hamilton's a man of very strong views, and he is frankly an elitist. Uh, he did not have great confidence uh, in the, the form of government adopted in the Constitution. He had had a vision of a, of a proper Constitution as mandating a, a lifetime president and a lifetime senate, uh, something a lot closer to the British monarchy and mm. the British lords. Didn't Burr attempt a political rebirth in the West after he killed Hamilton? What was he, he doing did. out there and, wh and what happened? Well, well, Burr knew that he had no more political future in New York. 
And so he, he also knows that he has a popularity in the new Western states. So he heads there to, to see what he can work out. And, and Burris is a, is a great cunning operator. And he, he's kind of floats different ideas by different people. And so the, the base idea is that he's gonna go and rally Westerners to invade the Spanish empire, which at that time uh, included Texas and to see what they could do. But he also floats to other people that maybe he'd also promote the secession of the Western states to join this new empire he would create that would combine Mexico and the American West. And when rumors of this get to Thomas Jefferson, who was president of the United States at that time, then Jefferson sets in motion an effort to arrest Burr and charge him with treason. Now, pirates were also, um, well, what happened? Uh, did they catch Burr and was he tried for treason? They, they caught Burr. They tried him for treason in Richmond, Virginia. The presiding judge was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Marshall. And John Marshall could see that the Jefferson administration had a very flimsy case. And he so instructed the grand jurors and the grand jurors found uh, Aaron Burr to be um, not proven guilty. Yeah. So then he just lived out his life. Uh, uh, he lives out in relative obscurity thereafter, yeah. Now, I, I was starting to talk about pirates. They were a major problem for American ships. What did the US government uh, do attempt to stop that? Well, the chief problem were people uh, living along the north coast of Africa who uh, were Muslim, uh, and they had a long-standing conflict with the various Christian nations of Europe, and that included um, the exchange of these piratical attacks. And the Americans are, are trying to trade in the Mediterranean, and they're perceived by these Barbary states, as they were called, Barbary states of North Africa is just Europeans. And so the United States is, is told that they have to pay protection money or they will suffer the loss of their merchant ships. And they did suffer very heavy losses of merchant ships. The, the Washington administration and then the John Adams administration paid this protection money, but the Jefferson administration decides that they won't. And that will lead to a war with one of these Barbary states, uh, that one known as Tripoli uh, in what we now mm -hmm. call Have you disappeared? I'm, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Suddenly you dropped out, but I'm glad you're still there. I was thinking about Stephen Decatur Jr. Brooklynites will recognize that name because there's a Decatur Street in Brooklyn. Uh, he was a, a naval lieutenant uh, in the Barbary Wars. What did he do to distinguish himself to get a street in Brooklyn named after him? Well, well, Decatur uh, in, in the first decade of the 19th century is, is a junior officer, very young junior officer, an ambitious man, very able officer, very courageous. And so he becomes the most active of the naval officers operating in this blockading squadron that is off the capital city of Tripoli. And he's involved in some very daring operations including the dashing into the harbor of Tripoli in order to set fire to a ship, uh, a former American warship that had been captured by the Tripolitans known as the Philadelphia. And he manages to set fire to it and to escape safely. And so he becomes, uh, he gets promotion to captain, the youngest captain in the American Navy. 
The Federalists like Hamilton were vehemently opposed to the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Didn't he say he it would lead to the dismemberment of a large portion of our country or a dissolution of the government? I, I always thought that that new land was critical to his um, his Jefferson's for Jefferson's plan for natives peoples. It's central to Jefferson's plan, but Jefferson's plan is not Hamilton's plan because they're political ah. opponents. And so Hamilton is opposed to it because he believes, and, and rightfully so, that if you add all of this Western territory, and the Louisiana Purchase was, was nearly doubled the size of the United States, it carries the Western boundary of the United States from the Mississippi, where it had been at the end of the revolution, it carries it all the way to the Rocky Mountains. So for Hamilton, you're going to add all of these Western states. And new Western states had tended to, to rally to the Jeffersonian Republican Party. So the Federalists who were concentrated in the Northeast in places like New York City, they're, they're seeing their own political influence will be diluted if you add more Western states. So they oppose the Louisiana Purchase as making the United States too big. And partly it's just the selfish reason that for their own political interests, they don't want new states that will be opposed to their politics. But they also feared that the United States was gonna become unmanageable, too large. And this is a time before the railroad. And there is a legitimate concern that if you're creating new states west of the Mississippi, will their interests be the same as those of the East? And that's why Hamilton opposes it. But, but as we drove Indian tribes away from their ancestral lands, many of them relocated in the Great Plains east of the Rockies. How did that affect the native tribes that were already living there? Well, the relocation of, of Eastern Indians comes to its peak during the early 1830s. And they're being pushed off into the Great Plains to what is now Oklahoma and Kansas. Mm -hmm. And Americans, American leaders tended to think of those as a great dumping ground for Indians because they just saw it as wide open spaces. But the reality is that there were Indian peoples already living there. And those native peoples didn't want to have thrust into their midst all sorts of other native peoples who had often been their traditional enemies. Native peoples were not all united. So did Jefferson see the Osages and the Lakotas as kind of fighting the battle that the U.S. government uh, couldn't fight or didn't want to fight? Well, the United States doesn't protect these Eastern Indians that are pushed into the midst of the Osage and the Lakotas. And the Osages and the Lakotas had been at odds with the United States. So American leaders aren't all that upset that Native peoples are fighting one another in this new territory. Although Jefferson urged uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to treat the Lakota Indians respectfully, you note that they were infamously skimpy when it came to doling out the gifts that were a centerpiece in U.S. diplomacy at the time, relying instead on bluster and displays of weaponry. Why were Lewis and Clark so antagonistic toward Native Americans, even after the president asked them to take a more respectful view? Well, Lewis and Clark are not disrespectful across the board, uh, but they're, they're also on a limited budget and they've got a, a limited quantity of presents to give. And they are ascending the Missouri River 
and they, they are stopped by the Lakota people who are in the habit of stopping any white people going up the river, and they expect some generous presents, and, and Lewis and Clark aren't delivering them. And in part, it's because they're saving those presents to give them to people further up the river, native peoples known as the Mandan. And so Lewis and Clark settle in very happily once they reach the Mandan and are much more generous with them. So what the Lewis and Clark expedition does is it initiates a pattern in which the United States will pick some native peoples to be their friends and will treat them relatively generously in the short term, but they make enemies of the enemies of their friends. So the Mandans had been at odds with the Lakota and American leaders, including Lewis and Clark, decide that they prefer the Mandans and will help them rather than the Lakotas who will, they will make enemies of. How accurate is the story we've been told about the role of Lewis and Clark's 16-year-old Shoshone guide, Sacagawea? Well, it's, it's pretty accurate if that story is that Sacagawea becomes an essential guide for them. When Lewis and Clark were going up the Missouri River, they had no native peoples with them to help them. Once they reach the Mandan villages, they learn about Sacagawea, a young woman who just um, married one of the wives of a French trader based in the Mandan villages. And she comes from the Rocky Mountains, from the Shoshone people. And Lewis and Clark understood that the great difficulty they would have in going on to the Pacific was to find a way through the Rocky Mountains. And they knew they'd need the help of native peoples who lived in the Rocky Mountains. So to have Sacagawea on board, literally on board with their expedition and able to converse with the Shoshone people is an asset that they desperately needed. And so they recruited her and her husband and she's bringing along an infant child and she will play a critical role when they get to the Rocky Mountains and they find themselves not just among the Shoshone, but among a group of Shoshone led by her brother. Now, they gave her only a couple of presents for her 19 months of helping them, but gave her husband $500. Was that because she was a Native American or, or because she was a woman? Primarily because she's a woman. Uh, so the, the understanding of the property system in the early 19th century in the United States was that, that men own everything, um, in the, with the rare exception of women who are widows. Uh, Sacagawea is not a widow. So the money that, that, she, that we would think she had earned gets paid instead to her husband. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. No refuge could save the hiring and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave and the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're back with Alan Taylor, whose latest book is American Republics, a Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850, published by Norton. This is WBAI. That was one of the verses 
of the Star Spangled Banner that we don't hear very often. Uh, is that because uh, Francis Scott Key actually um, was was a slave owner and denigrated the, the runaway slaves who fought for the British in the War of 1812? We don't sing the, the, all of the verses, largely because we have short attention spans, so, so one of them mm -hmm. will do. Uh, but it is true that, that Francis Scott Key was a slaveholder. Uh, he had an, a, a very complex relationship to slavery. He could be critical of it, but he remained a slaveholder throughout his whole life. Um, and, and it is also a fact that when he wrote this, he is viewing the British bombardment of Baltimore during the War of 1812, and he's inspired by the failure of that bombardment and the survival of the Star-Spangled Banner flying over Fort McHenry. And, and he considers the British troops to, to be slaves in, in a couple of senses. One, he, he sees them as mercenaries and slaves, and literally he, he knew, as all people did in Maryland at that time, that the British had been recruiting former American slaves into a unit known as the Royal Marines and those Royal, excuse me, the Colonial Marines, a branch of the Royal Marines. And the Colonial Marines were involved in the operation at Baltimore. But he uh, called free blacks the greatest evil that affects a community because they were uh, siding with the British or uh, it was something else. And, and uh, do you think that his dark past was ever discussed uh, when they, it was decided to make his song, the national anthem? Well, what Francis Scott Key is saying is a common view held by American leaders of the time. It's not just Francis Scott Key. It's also Henry Clay or James Madison, who were all members of something called the Coloniz American Colonization Society that was committed to encouraging slaveholders individually, voluntarily to free their slaves with the promise that this society then would help to defray the cost of deporting all of the freed slaves out of America and sending them back to West Africa, particularly to a country now known as Liberia. So the, the idea there was that the United States should be an entirely white country, should be freed of slaves, but also freed of black people. And that was a very popular position among American political leaders. For a time, Abraham Lincoln believed that before he became president. And even in the very early years of his presidency, he was a supporter of the idea of colonization. So I, the, the Star Stangled Banner does not become the official American national anthem until the 20th century. And when it does, there's no discussion of Francis Scott Key's views on slavery. That just wasn't considered an issue at that time. So let's talk a bit about the War of 1812. In 1812, the U.S. Navy owned five warships, while the British Royal Navy had 500. Is that why Republicans in Congress felt that invading Canada would be an easier fight? Well, the United States has five substantial warships. It has many smaller warships, but still we're talking about two or three dozen you know, smaller warships, things like gunboats but five significant warships that were known as frigates. And the British Navy had at least 500 significant warships. So American political leaders, the Madison administration at that time, and we were talking about the years 1812 to 1815, they, they said, there's no way we can compete with the Royal Navy. 
So if we're going to strike at the British Empire, our best way to do that is to use land forces and to strike northward into Canada, which at that time was part of the British Empire. And they thought that a land war would be a lot easier. It turns out they were wrong, in large part because you, at that time you couldn't invade Canada without controlling the Great Lakes. And so the United States would have to build its own navy on the Great Lakes in order to, to try to win this war. And they would have only limited success in trying to gain control of the Great Lakes. And you write that many Republicans thought the Canadians would greet us as liberators. How did they get that so wrong? Well, there's some reason for it in that um, Canada consisted of, of two main colonies, one called Lower Canada, which we call Quebec. And most of the people there were French Canadians. So the belief was those French Canadians don't like British rule. They will welcome an American invasion. The other big colony was Upper Canada, what we now call Ontario. Most of the people living there had been uh, recent inhabitants of the United States. They'd been people who'd moved after the American Revolution to settle in Upper Canada. The belief was that, that these people will rally to the American flag. So, but hadn't but, they left because they sided with the British? That's true for the early arrivals, those who go during the 1780s. But those who go during the 1790s and in the very early 19th century, they're bargain hunters. The British were offering free land, virtually free land in Canada. And so some Americans are going there. But it turns out they're pretty apolitical. They don't really care who governs them. And so they just want to stay on their farms and be left alone rather than help the American invaders. You describe the inferiority of American soldiers in the War of 1812. Why was it so difficult to create an effective fighting force? Well, it's very hard to have an effective fighting force if you don't have proper training. And the United States had virtually no army at the start of the war. So they're trying to just rush raw recruits up to the front lines without proper training. Uh, and they have great difficulty enlisting enough men. Wages were relatively high in the United States, and it's a lot safer to be a farm laborer than it is to be thrust into combat in Canada. So the recruitment lags far behind the targets for enlistment. And, and that just increases the desperation to just throw these raw recruits into combat. And as one might expect, these raw recruits don't do very well when they come up against an adversary that includes highly trained British forces assisted by native peoples who are fighting as British allies. But despite the army's desperate need for fighting men, didn't our government refuse to allow black men to enlist? Was, was, were both parties in general agreement about that? Well, the Federalist Party is out of power. And the Jeffersonian Republicans are, are trying to wage this war without Federalist help. So it's just a question for the Jeffersonian Republicans. And some Northern Jeffersonian Republicans said, look, we're desperate for men. We've got some free blacks who want to enlist. Why wouldn't we enlist them? Well, most of the Republicans, including those who are from the South, like James Madison said, we can't do that because white men won't wanna serve side by side in units with black soldiers. 
And so the, the potential recruits were just turned away on the basis of their race during the War of 1812. And this is a real blow to American war effort because the United States needed all the soldiers it could get for this war. But we finally won, didn't we? Or did we, was it just a draw? Don't tell Canadians we won. They <laughs> Canadians love to tell Americans, look, you invaded us and we defeated you. And the reality is the United States failed to conquer Canada. Their invasions mostly ended in disaster. But in the last year of the war, the British are in a position to counterattack by invading the United States, attacking Washington, D.C. and burning the Capitol and the White House, going on to Baltimore, where they failed invading down, uh, excuse me, up Lake Champlain, attacking Plattsburgh, New York, and then ultimately attacking New Orleans. And the British suffered a major defeat at Plattsburgh and an even bigger defeat at New Orleans. So at the end of the war, the British reach a peace treaty with the United States that basically says, we're just going to go back to the boundaries as they were at the start, and we're going to forget about the maritime issues that started the war. United States gets a draw out of the War of 1812. Because they won some victories at the very end, they decide to focus on those victories rather than the earlier defeats. Mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson was known for his horrific violence toward Native peoples. Didn't that help his rise to political prominence in Tennessee? Well, Jackson's a pretty violent man. He's not just toward Native peoples, but it is true that he is most violent toward Native peoples. And he had played a role in the War of 1812 of destroying resistance by people known as the Creeks in what is now Alabama. And he moved on and won this big victory at New Orleans. So he emerges from the war as a great American military hero associated with defeating the British, but also with defeating Native peoples. And this means that he is going to be the dominant political figure in American political life for the ensuing generation. When he raided a Creek village in retaliation for an attack on Fort Mims in Alabama in, in, in 1814, uh, in order to get an accurate count on the number of fatalities, didn't he tell his men to bring him the noses of the dead who were mostly women and children? Uh, he did do that, yes. He wanted to have uh, what he considered an accurate count, so he had them uh, cut off their noses of the, <laughs> of the corpses, and, and most of the dead were women and children. When he became president uh, in 1829, he had a series of physical ailments from old dueling wounds, rheumatism, clogged lungs, missing teeth, chronic dysentery, coughing fits. He described as producing great quantities of slime. Uh, did his medical conditions affect his style of governing? Well, Andrew Jackson was always a, a man um, quick to anger uh, and very slow, if ever, to forgive. He had a very uh, long career of, of grievances against other people and enmities against other people, and including rival white men who were uh, legal or political rivals. And so he, 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 he never is a sunny disposition guy in the best of circumstances. But as he got older, he, he has more physical ailments. He's in pain chronically. He, he has a bullet near his spine from a, a dueling uh, exchange. 
that cannot be removed surgically given the medical conditions of the time. And that causes him pain. And then he has very bad teeth and he's just suffering from old age ailments. And then his, his, his revered wife dies just before he will enter the presidency. And he blamed his political enemies for slandering her. And so he, he is, he's going to be a very vengeful president in many ways for all of these reasons. Was the Whig Party formed in response to Jackson's election? Yes, when Jackson's elected president, the, the first party system, the competition between the Federalists and the Republicans had, had faded because the Federalist Party had collapsed. And there are various factions of the Republican Party that are running presidential candidates. One of those factions favors Jackson, and Jackson will win the presidency in 1828 and enter it in 1829. And then the opponents of Jackson create a new party that's called the Whig Party. It's initially led by Henry Clay, who is Jackson's great political rival during the late 1820s and early 1830s. I'm speaking with Alan Taylor on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His latest book, American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850, published by Norton. Um, a lot of things that we just uh, kind of know about but don't know where they come from occurred at this time. For example, Samuel Swart. Swart Wart uh, Swart Wart, uh, yes. Yeah, he, the uh, great the New customs Yorker. Collector. <laughs> yeah, he was a New York City customs collector for, for Jackson. Not only stole over a million dollars before he fled the country, didn't he also give us the term the spoil system? Well, he didn't give us that, that term, uh, but he certainly lived it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's, he's a supporter of Jackson and Jackson's supporters once he got elected, said, you, you, you got to fire all the people that were appointed by previous presidents. And, and Jackson does a pretty good job of that and, and claims that he's going to improve the quality of the federal civil service from doing this. But he's appointing his political cronies, the people who helped him. And it turns out some of them are corrupt. And Swartwood was spectacularly corrupt. And uh, and steals more money from the federal government than anybody before the Civil War. Wasn't didn't Northern racism get worse when freed blacks began to appear in large numbers uh, in the North at the beginning of the 19th century? How was life in Northern cities for African Americans in that period? Well, in the wake of the American Revolution, the Northern states, acting on a state by state basis, ended up freeing their enslaved people. And they did so in a very gradual way. So they would say in these laws passed by individual states, not the federal government doing this, it's the individual states. So New York, for example, passes a law, 1799, says um, we're not freeing any of the slaves who are now alive, but every slave born after this day will become free, depending on their gender, uh, when they get into their 20s. So it's, a, it's an, an earlier age for, uh, I believe the young man, the young woman to become free than the young man, but it's both in the twenties. In any case, 
it's a very slow, gradual process. But by the time we get into the 1820s and 1830s, you're starting to get a significant number of African-Americans in places like New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania who are free. They're, they're now coming to outnumber the enslaved people living in these northern states. And when that happens, then a, a fair number of, of white people, a majority of white people, it has to be said, become alarmed. And they, uh, and they restrict black people. In most of these states, including New York, the, the vote is away from most free blacks. And they, they find all sorts of prejudice that, that denies them advanced education, that uh, confines them to the most menial jobs, and restricts them to the least desirable neighborhoods. And the consequence of all this will be poverty. And people who live in poverty then seem to justify the prejudiced people who say, well, look, they're not cut out for freedom. Look how poor they are. Sounds to me like something that continued into our times. Um, now, slavery was mostly limited to the Southern states and, and cotton became a major crop because of the invention of the cotton gin. It hadn't been before. You write that cotton frontier developed a culture of violence with murder rates by whites on whites in central Georgia, 45 times higher than in New England. Why were they killing each other it's in such high numbers over cotton? And should I assume that there were no similar statistics on the murder of African-Americans because it was for the most part legal to murder them? Well, virtually no court is going to get involved in prosecuting a white man for killing a, a black person, um, especially an enslaved black person at that time. Uh, and so we, we don't have good statistics on the death of enslaved people at the hands of of white people prior to the Civil War. We do have statistics for white on white violence and it's shockingly high in places like Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee. These are places that are frontier societies and frontier societies tend to be more violent than more settled societies. There are also frontier societies with slavery and slavery is a system of violence. It's violence is used to intimidate and punish, and in some cases to kill enslaved people. And so white men who are used to inflicting violence on others and are in this very competitive and fluid frontier society, when they get into contentions with one another, they are are well-armed and they are prone to use violence on one another. And it leads to these very high murder rates. I was surprised to learn that between 1806 and 1838, free blacks lost the right to vote in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and four other states, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, Rhode Island, and Maryland, and that every new state except Maine barred them from voting. Yes, it's, this is a, a period in which we, we call it an age of democracy, of greater democratization, and that's partly true because the property requirements for white men to vote go away. They're taken away in new state constitutions, either written by brand new states like Illinois or Indiana, or states hold new constitutional conventions, which is what New York does 
and rewrites its state constitution and does so in a way that gets rid of the property requirement for white men to vote, but keeps that property requirement for blacks to vote. And so it means that almost no blacks qualify to vote in New York state after 1821 until we get up to the Civil War. Now, as I said at the beginning, it would be impossible to cover everything. And there are so many things that you write about in this book that are interesting, including uh, the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman, the Nat Turner's slave uprising, uh, the um, the alliance between uh, uh, suffragists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and abolitionists, the story of, of, of Frederick Douglass, <laughs> the uh, Seneca Falls Convention, the population explosion, 4 million U.S. citizens, 1790, by 1840, over 17 million uh, I can't get into Manifest Destiny, the Monroe Doctrine. I guess this is why people are going to have to read your book. Um, one of the other things that I found fascinating was that uh, many the stories that I had learned about Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, and a few other uh, things like that turn out not to be the, 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 the truth. So um, this is also a period of uh, creation of legends. Well, we're, we're very good in creating myths in our country and calling those myths history. And there's, there's often a germ of truth in a, in a myth, but it's not the whole story. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to recover the whole complicated story of our history from the revolution until the year 1850. And uh, you've done an amazing job. I loved reading this book. It's called American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. Uh, the new book from two-time Pulitzer Prize winning historian Alan Taylor. It's published by W.W. W. Norton. What a pleasure it's been talking well, it's with been you. For me, thank you for having me on. And uh, I'm sorry to say, because I, I was enjoying that conversation so much, that brings us to the end of today's show. My great thanks to Jesse Lent for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the financial means to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212 209 2950. Please do it right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to keep this historic station, the only one in the New York radio dial that is completely listener-sponsored on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of London Located Lord so we can continue to bring you these unique long-form interviews you won't find anywhere else. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already s stepped up to support this program during this terrible pandemic, thank you. 
Uh, we're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us for Wednesday's show when former New York City Council member Daniel R. Gorodnik will discuss his new book, Saving Stuyvesant Town, How One Community Defeated the Worst Real Estate Deal in History. We'll see you then.